Well, good to have Jerry and Judy back, huh? We uh, look forward to hearing a little bit about your vacation and your travels and how uh, the Lord blessed you through all that. Glad to have you here today. Um, we are about to launch a very special week around here. Uh, most of you are aware because you saw the Grand Canyon when you came in the back or you noticed these uh, places on the wall over here that we are about to launch Vacation Bible School. And so uh, we want to, uh, for those of you that spend a little time in prayer, let's say in the mornings, would you do us the favor of especially praying for our Vacation Bible School every day this week? Uh, that experience for me as a kid was very formative, very foundational for me. And um, uh, it, it turns out that way every year for our kids. It's stuff that you'll look back on, you know, when you are in the adult years and see, you know, God was already interacting with me in a very important way at that age. Uh, I want to take a moment to pray for our workers as well as the kids uh, before we get into our study today. And so if you are a Vacation Bible School worker, you're going to be a teacher, you're doing recreation, you're doing refreshments, you're doing the audiovisual stuff, whatever you're doing this week, would you just stand where you are? so that we can uh, see who you are and pray for you. Okay, just keep standing. So those of you that are seated near one of these guys, just kind of zero in on that person in your heart, and uh, let's pray for them, all right? Father, thank you for these servants. Uh, They love you. They love our children. They're giving themselves across this week to serve and uh, to see you do special stuff in the lives of kids. And so we just pray blessings on them. We pray that you give them grace. We pray that you sustain them with energy all across the week. We pray that you would bring an important touch or an important word, uh, an important encouragement through them to our kids this week. And we pray it's a day of salvation. We pray that some of our kids will come to know you in a personal way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen? Amen. Thanks, guys. So speaking of Vacation Bible School, when this service is over, uh, we're going to need to kind of clear out every chair in the room. And so if you uh, could give us about five minutes before you dash out of here and stack a few chairs, that would be awesome. Okay, we're going to be looking at Second Chronicles chapter 29 in just a moment. And if you're our guest today, you're going, second What? Second Chronicles is a book out of the Old Testament, and uh, if you don't know exactly where it is and you have a Bible, look in the table of contents and find that. You'll want to read with us. We are going through the Bible, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, across this year. We started in January. We're going to end in December. And uh, this coming week, you're in for some, some very good reading. And so I want to encourage you about week 29 that we start today. Before we get into all that... Uh, Somebody sent me an email this week that uh, basically posed the question, how are you going to help this guy get unstuck? So I just wonder, have you ever felt like you've fallen and you can't get up? Uh, Or you have stuck your head or nose into something and you're like, why did I go there? Uh, Life is a stinky mess. What am I doing here? Um, it, look, it, it seemed like a good idea at the moment. <laughs> you ever had any of those kind of feelings? How do you get 
unstuck. Well, if that's all the problem we had in life was just being a little stuck, there's a lot of help out there. There's a lot of self-help out there. I uh, did a little search on that, and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of sites and books and articles and, and experiences that you can go through to get unstuck. Sixteen steps here, seven steps there, four keys, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, friends, the uh, kind of sobering news today is that it's a whole lot more serious than just being a little stuck. In fact, life is really, really broken. And you know that. And you know that I could spend the next three or four minutes and just hurl statistics at you about how broken life is and how broken culture is. And then uh, we'd all be kind of dragging ourselves out of here. So I'm not going to do that. You, you know. And if you care about people... And you have any compassion in you, and you kind of make yourself available in any given week, people will tell you how broken life is, right? You've got friends, you've got colleagues, you've got uh, co workers, you've got neighbors, you have uh, strangers uh, at various places in the community that you'll just bump into, and the next thing you know, it'll just begin to, to come out how broken life is. It's broken relationally. It's broken economically and financially. It's broken physically and with health. It's broken spiritually. So that's not a newsflash. And the question is a bigger and a more profound question than just how do I get a little unstuck, but how, how do I see life get fixed so that it's full and meaningful Purposeful, joyful. How does that happen? Well, we uh, discovered uh, several weeks ago in our readings something that uh, began to be impressed upon King Solomon. So a long time back, as uh, we've been through a lot of kings and hundreds of years since then. But here's what uh, Solomon discovered back in his time, uh, the Lord said to him, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. So most of you in the room today that regularly gather for worship or you regularly gather in a small group to further your discipleship and your commitment to the Lord, you regularly hang out with others who are of faith, you know this. You practice this. You call upon the name of the Lord. You humble yourself. You seek His face. You confess your sins. He touches your life. He begins to bring uh, cleansing and forgiveness and renewal and uh, you get back at a hard place and He restores you again. And you get back at a hard place and He restores you again. So most of you know this. Do your friends know this? Do the people that God allows you to traffic with on any given week have any idea about where the hope is for life to be healed and to be helped? Some of you are reading this week uh, 
is going to seem a little repetitive, and here's why. It's an unusual week for you in this sense. Out of three different sections of the Bible, you're going to have the same story told. And when you think about that, why? when you think about the precious space that is in the Bible, there's only so many things that are covered there. Why would you give space in three different books to the same story? And because the Bible gives such attention to it, we're going to give attention to it for a few moments this morning. And it has to do with a good king. You go, there was one? Yes, there was. So as you have been reading, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king in the histories of Israel and Judah. And this week we're going to come across a good king by the name of Hezekiah. And one of the reasons that Hezekiah is considered good is because he brought about a significant renewal amongst the people. He was successful in carrying out what God had told Solomon hundreds of years prior, and that was seek the Lord, confess your sins to the Lord, turn to the Lord with humility, allow the Lord to hear your confessions and hear your heart and draw near to you and touch your life and transform your life and bring hope and healing to your life. And he carried that out. And the first thing that he did was he addressed the idolatry that was going on in the land. So you've been reading along for these uh, weeks and months. You know, big, 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 big deal is idolatry. In fact, it's such a big deal when God gave the Ten Commandments. Uh, the first commandment had to do with it. And the second commandment had to do with it. The third commandment had to do with it. The fourth commandment had to do with it. That you worship God and God alone. You don't make any graven images. So you, you don't get anything else esteemed too highly in your life. You keep uh, practices in your life that keep your heart and your focus on God. And so uh, Hezekiah did this and he did it well. Uh, the gods of the day, just so th- those of you that are doing the reading, uh, you'll make sense of these names that get thrown at you. Uh, the primary god that was in their region, that false god, uh, a cultural god, was called Baal. And this was a god of supposed uh, fertility. In other words, if you worship this god, you would have good crops. And in an agricultural society, that was huge. And you would also have children. And in an agricultural society that needed many hands to work, you needed big families. And so you needed crops and you needed a bunch of children. And the fertility god was uh, supposedly your answer for that. And so Baal was a major competitor to the Lord God, to Jehovah God. And uh, uh, the Hebrews constantly were tempted uh, to worship like the Canaanites of the land, Baal. Now, Baal had, depending upon uh, the locale, either a consort, spouse-type god, or a mother who was known as Asherah. Or Ashtaroth. You'll see both names used and both uh, kinds of relational connections to Baal sometimes described. Now, uh, a lot of times Baal had an image like what you see on the screen. And the Ashtaroth or the Asherah were basically just poles, wooden poles that would be scattered around the hillside so that you could look to Asherah and have hope for fertility. Sometimes the poles were carved. 
uh, so that there was an image. But basically, when you read in scriptures about these idols being torn down, you're going to be reading about the Baals being smashed and the Asherah or the Ashtaroth being chopped down. And that's what it has to do with. It has to do with ridding the land of idolatry. So let's look a little bit at the text, Second Chronicles uh, 29, and uh, we're going to read the verses, see what uh, uh, Hezekiah did. And then we want to make sense of that for our time, for this day, for this week. So in chapter 29, we read, Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old. I think that's noteworthy. How old are you? See, if you're on the younger side of things and you're wondering, you know, what's my role in all this? What's my place? Does God have anything that he's up to with me? Absolutely. In fact, out of the good kings, uh, the four that you'll read about in these historical texts, uh, they began on the younger side. And there were some very important things that happened in their formative years that had their heart turned toward God. If you're a 20-something or a 30-something and you've already got your heart turned toward God, God's got a mighty plan, a mighty purpose for your life. And I just want to encourage you to lean into that and see what God might do. So Hezekiah is 25 years old. He reigns for 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name is Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, you know that's formulaic. In the introduction of every other king, it says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And here we read he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David, his father, had done. And in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and he repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and he assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites. Now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. So, immediately, he begins to enlist some other leaders alongside of himself. And he says, consecrate yourselves and consecrate this house, this temple. The uh, problems of idolatry, the problems of getting distance between self and God, the problems of wandering and being wayward from the the person of God and the plans of God and the purposes of God and so on, had resulted in such neglect in life and such neglect in the life of the religious community. Everything was in disrepair. Everything was a mess. Everything was filthy. He says, consecrate it all. In other words, clear it all out. Clean it all up. Make it what it's supposed to be. And so they do. Uh, Verse 5, 4, or verse 6. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of our God, and they have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord, and they've turned their backs. And they also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Can you imagine? As much emphasis as was given to all that and all the reading that you've been doing, you know what a big deal it is, and they have totally neglected all these things. Or say, therefore... The wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, 
Our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. Now notice, they are already a covenant people. Right? All the way back to Abraham. Then later with Moses and the whole uh, Mount Sinai experience. And then later, more covenant was established uh, in the time of Deuteronomy and the occupation of the Promised Land. Covenant, 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 covenant. Let's make a commitment to God and know His commitment to us over and over again. And yet here we are making another covenant, he says. It's in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that His fierce anger may turn away from us. So, my sons, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in His presence, to minister to Him, to be His ministers, and to make offerings to Him. And so that's the final takeaway that I want you to have from that text. He's chosen you. Now, I highlight all that happened with Hezekiah because it's kind of my hope Uh, It's the hope of many of us in this room. It's the hope of many of the churches across Redmond. It's the hope of many of the churches across the Puget Sound and the Northwest. And I've networked with these guys. I've met with these guys. We've been working together in these churches. That kind of like a Hezekiah. We could see the hearts of the people of God turn to God. So that He not only does a wonderful work in our midst, but He does a wonderful work out of our midst all around us. It's in our heart that we can have such a covenant, such an experience with Him. And, friend, you are chosen to take those steps to be in that kind of covenant with Him. Now, what's that look like? I want to highlight a few things for you, both out of the Old Testament and the New Testament. As I said, this story that we just read in Second Chronicles is also in Second Kings. It's also recorded in the book of Isaiah. It's told three times, almost verbatim, in all three places. Why? Because it's the heart of God. It's something that He wants to be the heart of people. So that... We are not only a people who have been transformed by Him, but we are His agents engaging a culture in such a way that the culture is transformed. And so how does that happen and what does that look like if we were to engage that? Well, the first thing is that we would be a people that would be about making a difference, not just making a point. It's way easier to make a point than it is to make a difference. You follow me? You parents, you know, your son, your daughter does something wrong. It's way easier to sit down and make a point about what they did wrong. Don't do it again. Do better. It's way easier to make that point. You walk away feeling pretty good. Hey, I made that point. You better have gotten that point than it is to make a difference. That is to say, walk with your son, walk with your daughter in such a way that some transforming things can happen in their thinking as well as in their living. 
I uh, have a friend who was engaging me not too long ago about a pretty hot topic, a pretty hot issue that is just way up on his radar. It's just very, 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 very important to him. And he, he was trying to engage me in that, and he was trying to get me, because he supposed that I was on the other end of uh, the continuum about where he was in that position. He was absolutely right. We were polar opposites about it. But I'm concerned about my friend. I care about my friend. I'm, I'm hopeful for God to do something special in the life of my friend. So he keeps pounding on this issue, wanting me to engage him on this issue. And I'm not going to make a point with him. Don't want to make a point with him. I want to make a difference in his life. And so as he kept probing and pushing and pricking and so on like that, I just finally said, you know what? You just have to understand, I come from a worldview that says this world, this culture, is, is just pretty broken. That's all I can say about it. And so I come from a perspective that says all of life is broken and including this issue is broken. And I, I'm one of those who is looking to see God do something to help and to heal that brokenness. You want to talk about that? And he relaxed a little bit. And he said, yeah. If that's what God's about, tell me more about that. But making a difference is not just conversation. Making a difference is to say, I see where you hurt. I see where uh, you need help. I want to be available to you. Uh, God wants to come into this scenario with you. And, and you, you engage. You get involved. You get messy with the messy stuff that goes on around you. Uh, I'm going to say more about that in a minute, but let me move on to say it's not only making a difference, it's also ministering to people rather than avoiding people. Now, nobody can be on call 24-7, you know, 365 days a year. So there are those occasions where we all have to kind of withdraw a little bit. We've got to have a little space around ourselves. We've got to recoup. We've got to recover. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you've got to be on and available 24-7, 365, okay? But much of the time, rather than trying to hide from people, avoid people, I don't want to respond to that email. I don't want to respond to that call. I don't want to respond to that text. I don't want, I don't want to see what's going on in his life. Rather than that kind of stuff, to care. To allow God to use your life to engage. I, I had a conversation with another friend this past week, and he is in a an extended family mess. He's not part of this church. He is in an extended family mess that he's telling me about, and I've seen how broken it is. And I I deal with enough messes. I don't need to go find new messes with people that, you know, are just kind of acquaintances out there. But it was unmistakably a stirring in my own heart. From God that said, get close to this mess. Care about it. Be compassionate. Pray for him. And when it was all said and done, I offered my time, hours, to go and help with this scenario. Minister to people, not avoid. And then the third thing I'll say to you is that there's got to be a focus about God doing this with you. And and you staying away from the distractions. 
Now, the classic example to that, I think, is, is Jesus when the religious leaders gather around him on multiple occasions because they got major problems with the way Jesus is carrying out his mission. He keeps going to broken places and broken people and broken systems and, and broken culture and letting God do helping, healing, hope-filled things through him and all around him. And they keep saying, yeah, but what about this issue? What about that issue? What about this uh, principle? What about this law? And so on one occasion, they come up to him and say, okay, what about taxes? Are we supposed to pay our taxes? I mean, the government's so unjust and the government is so unfair and the, the government is oppressing people. And it just seems to me that this is a big issue. What should we do about taxes? And Jesus will not be distracted from his mission. He's not going to go over here and engage all this political stuff. And so he said, okay, who's got a coin? Somebody pulls out a coin and he goes, who's... Whose image is on that coin? They said, Caesar. He said, well, then give that to Caesar and then give to God what is God's. And he got right back on mission. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you are, therefore, politically ignorant or naive or non-interested. I think uh, as good stewards in a democracy such as we are, we have to steward the responsibility and the, and the opportunity we have with democracy to know the issues and, and know uh, the policies that are in play and the politicians who uh, are working the policies. And so, yeah, you've got to have some engagement about that, but not at the expense of mission, not at the expense of God doing something in you and through you that makes a difference in this world for his glory. And the final thing I'll say about all that is that this is about God working in you in such a way that it motivates, it encourages, it brings a lift, rather than this kind of judgmental, uh, criticizing, critiquing mode that so many believers can fall into. In fact, uh, survey after survey after survey, when it, you get the public's opinion of the church or Christianity over and over again, it says, well, they're judgmental. They're critical. Uh, and so on with those kinds of descriptors. We're known more for what we are against than what we're for. Now, should we be against things? Of course. We should be against anything that God is against. But that doesn't mean that we, we proceed forward in life with everything that we're against out in front. What are we for? How do we want to help? How do we want to bless? The currency of heaven is blessing. When the first covenant was made through Abraham, it was like, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. The entering into the Mosaic covenant on Mount Sinai was all about uh, walking and living with God in such a way as you know his blessings. Entering the promised land was about blessings. So... Can we be a people of the blessing? Can we be a people that sees how God wants to bless people and walk with them and live with them in such a way that they experience blessings? Now, I'm not saying that we don't take a stand, that we, we don't uh, pray about God's uh, character coming through in culture and things like that. But I'm talking about that primary engagement that we're having in the middle of the culture. Now, this is something that Paul and uh, Jesus addressed all the time. And they did so uh, 
strategically. They did so winsomely. They did so wisely. And uh, I'll take you just briefly to Acts 17, where Paul goes just on the outskirts of the great city of Athens to a place called uh, the Areopagus or the Mars Hill area. And he's out there talking with all these big thinking, philosophical type guys. And what's the city of Athens and what are all these uh, areas just outside of the city known for? Idolatry. Big issue in the Old Testament, big issue in the New Testament, big issue today. We could talk about our idols if we wanted to spend that time today. But instead of going out into the culture, and there are just statue after statue after statue after statue of idols, and he start to rail against the idols and take a stand against the idols and show what he's against, he strategically and wisely began to find uh, common ground where they could meet with one another. And so he goes out into this area, and he says, Hey, I, I see you guys are religious people. You've got a statue to every god. And to make sure that you haven't forgotten anybody, you've even got a statue to the unknown god. Notice what he says in chapter 17, verses 22 and 3. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So you see what he did? He didn't get distracted on a side issue. He went right into the middle of a messy scenario because he was caring about people. And rather than rail on stuff, he said, you have a question about the unknown God? Let me tell you about the unknown God. And he told them about Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Say, friends, you not only know how broken life is, almost everybody around you knows how broken life is. Almost everyone around you wants to have some kind of answer about the brokenness of life. And you have it. You have the answer. Being reconciled to God, being touched, helped, healed by God, being transformed by God. The question is, will you do life with people, engage people in such a way that they can glean that answer out of your life? This is exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5 and 14 when he says, You are the light of the world. It's a dark place. It's a broken place. It's a hurting place. And because of what God's doing in you, you're like light against that backdrop of brokenness and hurt. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. It If you will allow God to do what God purposes to do in you, to help you, to heal you, to fill you with hope and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and and long-suffering and 
and generosity, if you allow him to do all that in you, it will be like a city set on a hill. People can't miss it. People will be asking you, how do you get that kind of life? The very next verse, verse 16 says, So in this same way, as a light can be seen against uh, the dark backdrop of a city, let your light shine before others. The, he's not, God's never said, when, when He talks about having your, your prayers done in the closet and your giving done in secret, and so on, He's talking about guarding your heart against being ostentatious and being showy and being hypocritical so that it's more about people uh, giving you attaboys and praise and all that than it is about you connecting with God. But when you're whole and and healthy before the Lord, and He's doing a good work in you, then He wants your good works to be seen because it draws other people to Him. It helps others to see Him. Now, as you might have been asking a moment ago when we're talking about uh, make a difference, don't make a point, and minister to people, don't avoid all these things, I know there's important issues. I know there are divisive things. I know there are uh, conservatives and progressives or liberals. Uh, I know that there uh, are all these dichotomies and differences. Jesus knew that too. And as he's telling the people of God, be light, be salt. He knew what the religious, moral, good-behaving, hard-trying people were thinking. They were thinking, well, but what about the rules? What about the laws? What about holiness and things like that? The very next verse, 17, he says, Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. They still matter. They're still crucial. They're still very important. But I've come to fulfill them. And what we're talking about is a means by which that is fulfilled. When we live for God as a missional people, a people who are carrying out His purposes. Colossians 4, 5, Paul exhorts us in this way. He says, be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Who are outsiders? People that don't get it. People that haven't had a connection with Christ. People who are not in the process of being transformed by His touch, by His healing work. For, for those people that are just surrounding your life, all over your life, He says, be wise toward them. Make the most of every opportunity. Do you know how many opportunities we get every week to make a difference in somebody's life, to do something that counts for heaven and counts for God? Every week, opportunity after opportunity. Make the most of it. Being wise in how you engage the friends and the colleagues and the co-workers and the neighbors that God has all around you. He says in the next verse, 
let your conversation. So you're going to engage. You're going to talk. You're going to have heart-to-heart, face-to-face kind of stuff go on. Let your conversation always be full of grace. Full of grace. Seasoned with salt. We've talked about that in here before. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of grace. Seasoning of salt. And so often our proclivity is salt, 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 salt. Here's a dash of grace. Get your life cleaned up. Straighten it out. Be like us. God will help you too. And the message of grace is just the opposite of that. As messy as you are, as broken and busted as you are, God's going to help you. Grace, grace, grace. But you must give your heart to Him. Salt. Know how to answer what God has been doing in you. Know how to describe that and to share that with someone else. That's what it means to be wise. That's what it means to make the most of every opportunity. I've just seldom in my life had a season, and it's been a prolonged season, a couple of years now, where God has blessed me with so many what I'll refer to as pre-believing friends. Because I'm hopeful that many of them are going to come to believe and come to see Christ for who He is and and meet up with Him in that uh, life-transforming kind of way. That may not happen. Uh, And that will grieve my heart if it doesn't. But I'm not going to be any different toward my friends uh, the way that uh, I have been over these past couple years. You just love them. You care. You pray. You serve. You give of yourself. You invest. There's time. And uh, you see God show up over and over and over again. So, it leads me to ask this question. Are you one of those that Christ has come into and onto your life? You've just been immersed in the saving work of Christ. Are you one of those people? He's transforming you. You're a different man. You're a different woman. You've got moments where your head's stuck in a tree, right? You've got moments where uh, you're in a place where you shouldn't be. But by and large, He has done a work in the brokenness in you, and there's a wholeness that dominates who you are. If that's who you are, then will you personally engage our culture for Christ? And if so, how are you going to do that? And so, the next couple of minutes, I'm asking you that fit the category I just described, you are a different person because of Jesus. I'm going to ask you to take that connection card, flip it over to the back side, and specifically say to God, because he's leading you, he's showing you something, a little revelation's happening for you right now. This is how I'm going to engage culture around me. This is how I'm going to make a difference. This is how you're going to have me touch the lives of people. This is how 
Uh, I'm going to be missional. I'm going to be on the mission. And then similarly, I will participate with my church to engage our culture for Christ by doing what? We already have a number of opportunities where our church collectively engages a segment of the culture, a group of people, where they're serving them, loving them, trying to bless them, uh, show them the love of Christ, that kind of thing. We already have some of those things in place, and so you may be going, well, I'm I'm going to get involved in this. Or you may be stirred in such a way you go, you know what, our church could do this, and I want to lead the way on it. Our church could address this issue, this homelessness, this uh, hunger problem, uh, this inoculation need, you know, whatever it is. And you write that down, and you better believe I'll follow up with you about that to see what God might be doing with us. Now, take a moment with me to close your eyes and pray, and then I'm going to give you about two minutes to just... Continue to think so that you can actually write something down that will be a commitment from you and to the Lord. And I'm going to pray for you about that commitment. Let's pray for just a minute. So, Father, thank you for speaking into our lives over these minutes. And so now, with clarity, will you show us some next steps? Will you show us how you want us to be faithful to you today? Will you help us to see people the way you see people? To see the opportunity the way you've crafted the opportunity? In Jesus' name. Take a minute with that.